This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is card number 757, John Marzano, catcher for the Boston Red Sox. All right, John Marzano, and why are we talking about John today? This card was requested a long time ago, way back in 2022, by Ryan, Red Sox fan, who had the great story about getting the ticket hookup in Baltimore from the great Sam Horn. Ryan said that he knew of Marzano as a former Olympian. He knew a little bit about him, that he had a scuffle with Paul O'Neill. And so he, he wanted to know a little bit more about John Marzano, the player and the person. And John Marzano, Johnny Mars, was a big personality, a fun-loving guy who had a tragic death at a far too young age. He was a college superstar, an Olympian, and he has a saber bio thanks to John Stefano. Thank you, John, for your work. John Marzano had a long career, 10 years, but didn't play all that much in those 10 years. So an interesting and long career and an unfortunate end for John Marzano. Let's go to the front of 757. And this is a very strange looking card, David. I feel like there are four to five levels and layers of Photoshop that have been just pasted on top of each other. We've got John in the in the front in his in a, in a very typical baseball batter pose, looking straight on at the camera, and you can see the batting cage behind him. And then behind that, you have what looks like the wall of the baseball field. But then behind it, it looks like maybe there's a lawn and there's people out in the lawn. It doesn't look like those are seats back there. And then trees behind that. There's lots of netting and fencing everywhere. It's just very confusing. I'm not sure what I'm looking at. This is taken by Phil Spector. There's just a lot going on in the background here. The wall of mess behind him. I have no idea what's going on. There's a lot of lines heading in multiple directions. There are so many balls in this. <laughs> this is uh, this is the most balls I've seen on a baseball photo since the Fanatics' release of the new uniform pants. <laughs> but this is generally a, a pretty generic-looking baseball card, but then the background of it is just, there's so much. It's chaos back there. Yeah, it's about balls everywhere, as you would say in the... I think that Marzano's uniform, too, looks like it could be... It has the kind of quality that you see in the new the new outfits that everyone's talking about. Yeah, six baseballs on the ground that are visible. It also kind of looks like John Marzano went to Olin Mills for this photo. <laughs> they had, like, a, a fake dirt and chalk cover. And the theater scrim drops down, and it has this scene of the batting cage behind him. And he's got this very nice grin. A lot going on with his uniform too. So you have the button up Jersey, but with what looks like kind of tortoise shell buttons and a plain white shirt and plain white pants. He's got a black undershirt that goes long sleeve, red wristband, red and black, not matching batting gloves. It's a like, what is going on here? Like, where did he get this uniform? I like to think that the guy in the background who's taking swings in the batting cage, because John isn't even in the batting cage. Like, John Marzano wasn't even supposed to have his picture taken, and he just wandered up while this other guy back here is getting a better 
and cooler picture taken where he's actually taking swigs. Yeah. And John Marzano just wandered in and said, like, no, 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 me now. This reminds me of Alfredo Griffin having an extra jersey and being able to play in the All-Star game because he just happened to have one and got to the game. Looks like John Marzano gets a baseball card because he just happened to be there and happened to have a button-down shirt and a belt and just scrounged together whatever gloves he could find. So it's a very opportunistic baseball card. We've had other cards where there were other players in the background and guys who you could kind of pick out. This might be the the one that if some eagle-eyed viewer out there can actually see who this is in the batting cage, that might be a legit player. Who knows? This is one of the few cards where there's somebody actually doing something in the background. Like the other <laughs> ones, it's everybody's just sitting. Maybe there's a mysterious figure creeping in the background. But this is like yeah. an active player in the background. It's just a, yeah. a very different card than we have seen. Any listeners, if you can point this out, you can email us at 1988toppspodcast at gmail.com. Now let's go to the back of 757, and we have John Marzano, catcher, 5'11", 185, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Red Sox in the first round in 1984, born February 14th, 1963, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with a home in Philadelphia. Marzano's name, according to Ancestry.com, is a habitational name from either of two places in Campania, Marzano Appio in Caserta province or Marzano di Nola in Avellino province. He went by the nickname Johnny Mars, which is different from the Smiths guitar player Johnny Marr. No relation to Mars Blackman or Motley Crue guitar player Mick Mars. Or, or Johnny Mars, the 93 XRT DJ or the harmonica player Johnny Mars who played with Magic Sam, Earl Hooker, BB King, Jimi Hendrix. So yeah. many Marses is. Lots of Johnnies, lots of Mars, but this one not related to those. The Marzano I'm most familiar with David is uh the San Marzano tomatoes which are delicious, less acidic. Generally you pay a premium for those. It, they're the kind that Any Italian nonna, when she's going to make sauce and there's no fresh tomatoes in season, they're going to be canned San Marzano tomatoes. Wondering if there's any relation there. Those tomatoes also play a big role in the bear season one. Mm. Mm. And I did notice that those tomatoes also show up on the shelves in Hooper's store on Sesame Street. So we can assume that mm. the bear and Sesame Street exist in a shared universe. <laughs> I, I don't think that Cousin Richie is ready for Sesame Street. I feel like his, his language, there's going to, I've not seen anything bleeped on Sesame Street in my experience, <laughs> but they might need to get that bleep button ready. Johnny Mars is from Philadelphia. He grew up in South Philly in an area that produced Frankie Avalon and Chubby Checker. South Philly officially became part of the city of Philadelphia in 1854, also the home of Jim Croce, Black Thought from the Roots, Larry Fine of the Three Stooges, Pat and Gino's Cheese Steaks, Patty's Pub from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and according to one of Marzano's Little League coaches, you can only be three kinds of things if you're from South Philly. A baseball player, a singer, or a gangster. Johnny's parents, John Sr. and Laura, were Italian and had four kids, two boys and two girls. John Sr. was a retired Army warrant officer, and he would spend hours training John Jr. Eight to ten hours a day, sitting in the park, 
on a milk crate throwing batting practice to his son. And when he got tired of that or Johnny got too good for his pitching, he ended up using $1,000 to buy a pitching machine. So this picture on the front is fitting. John Jr. spent a lot of time in the batting cage, and he became somewhat of a Little League celebrity. And along with all that hitting ability, he also pitched four no-hitters and a perfect game in one Little League season. His Little League coach was a guy named Gabriel Spanky Antonio, and he worked maintenance at Veterans Stadium and was able to get Johnny into workout in the team's batting cage. He also worked with the team's coaches, and by high school, John Marzano was playing third base, wearing number 20 in honor of local hero Mike Schmidt. He also went to national camp, Steve Boros' camp in Florida. Boros was a former major league player, coach, and manager, and an early adopter of computers and sabermetrics, and he advised John that he should play catcher, as it would give him his best chance of playing in the majors. A tip that several of our players have received in their careers. John went to Central High, the only high school in the U.S. with the authority to confer academic degrees, which was granted by an act of the state government. This was a prestigious high school founded in 1836. The current building was opened in 1900, and the formal dedication was attended by President Theodore Roosevelt. Lots of famous alumni, tons of them, judges, legislators, astronauts, Nobel Prize winners. And also a maybe more infamous alum, Ira Einhorn, no relation to Mark Eichhorn. Einhorn in German is actually unicorn. And so this guy at one point became known as the unicorn killer. A listener, Damon, in the Mark Eichhorn Instagram post just commented, Ira Einhorn? And I didn't think <laughs> about it until I saw Ira Einhorn's name on this alumni list. And I went, wait a minute, who is this guy? Ira Einhorn was a speaker at the first Earth Day event. He was an environmental activist, but also a paranormal interested person who was later arrested for murdering his girlfriend in 1979. He was represented by Arlen Specter, who would later go on to be a U.S. senator. There is a baseball connection here. His legal fees were paid by Barbara Bronfman, who shared an interest in the paranormal with Einhorn. Barbara was from Montreal. Her family made a lot of money. They owned the Seagram's Liquor Company. She was married to Charles Bronfman, who owned the Expos. And also one of their children, Ellen, is married to Andrew Hauptman, who once owned and ruined the Chicago Fire Football Club. <laughs> so Einhorn gets this help from Barbara Bronfman. He skips bail and flees to Europe, where he lives in France for the next 17 years. He's convicted in absentia of murder. The extradition started in 1997, but didn't end for four years. He appealed all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights, finally was brought back to the States and put in prison where he died in 2020. He went to Central High. Also Teller of Penn & Teller, John Baxter Taylor, who was the first African-American Olympic gold medalist. And another baseball connection here, Daniel and Simon Guggenheim went to the high school in the 1800s. They're from the Guggenheim family that made a fortune in mining. Now their descendants own the Guggenheim partners, managed $300 billion in assets, including Guggenheim Baseball Management, which is the ownership group of the Los Angeles Dodgers. 
John was a star at Central High, and we're not sure if these are his full stats, but according to his Sabre bio, in the first 12 games of his senior year, John had 27 RBIs and hit 527 with a slugging percentage of 1.167. He was the Philadelphia Daily News' City Player of the Year and was first-team All-State and then drafted in the third round by the Twins, which is pretty high selection for a high school player. But the back of the card says he didn't sign until 1984 because John had a scholarship offer to Temple University, also in Philadelphia, and he said that was worth almost twice what the Twins were offering. This might be a sliding door scenario, too, where if John had signed with the Twins, they might have given him more of a playing opportunity, and he might have been fast-tracked to the majors or spent more time on a major league roster as a starting catcher. Instead, he goes to Temple, where he's outstanding. Over three seasons, he hits 413. For his career, he slugged 676 and still remains in the top 10 in homers and RBIs. He hit 393 as a freshman, played in the Cape Cod Summer League. After his sophomore season, where he hit close to 400 again, he hit 398. We end up getting a fun fact, which is an odd time for a fun fact on these 1988 Topps cards. Yeah, that was that John was the MVP in the USA Korea series in 1983. He also played in Intercontinental Cup and the Pan Am Games. Throughout his college career, he's involved in the Team USA setup. All of this was in advance of the 1984 Olympics. Team USA won silver in the Intercontinental Cup in Brussels, bronze at the Pan Am Games in Caracas. As a junior, John comes back, hits 448 with 15 homers, 61 RBIs as the Owls won their second straight Atlantic 10 title. He was named to both the Sporting News and Baseball America All-American teams. He hadn't gotten drafted after his freshman or sophomore seasons, but after that outstanding junior season, we have a This Way to the Clubhouse. Yes, and that is that John signed as a first-round draft selection with the Boston Red Sox, August 21st, 1984, by scout Phil Rossi. The Red Sox had been following John since high school, and they picked him in the first round of that 1984 draft. Other guys picked in that first round, Bill Swift, Corey Snyder, Mike Dunn, Jay Bell, Mark McGuire, Odeby McDowell. All of those guys were picked before Marzano. Two picks after him, Scott Bankhead, another guy we've discussed before. And in the second round of that draft, Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and Al Leiter were all selected. Marzano signed for a $100,000 signing bonus and then went off to play for Team USA, where he was the starting catcher during the pre-Olympic tour, hitting 407, playing on that team with Will Clark, Barry Larkin, Mark McGuire, and he went 4-for-12 in the Olympics in the ultimately disappointing run to a silver medal. But after the Olympics, some of these guys just took a break before the 1985 season. John went to Instructional League, where he hit 380 and convinced the Red Sox that he should jump over rookie league and A-ball. They sent him straight to double-A New Britain for the 1985 season. He led the league's catchers in putouts and assists, but struggled a bit at the plate, hitting only 246 and a 283 on on-base percentage. The Sox still had high hopes for the young catcher, with Ted Williams predicting that John would make the big leagues almost immediately and be the rock of Gibraltar for a decade. That's it's very strong, very strong, very strong prediction for Ted Williams to make about a guy in Double A. So have we have we had a good Ted Williams prediction here? I think didn't no, he come I don't back? Think so. He compared Ray Quinones to Frank Robinson. Now he's saying 
John Marzotta will be the rock of Gibraltar. A bit ambitious or maybe he was selling stock. I mean, he really feels like a pump and dump scheme by Ted Williams somehow with some of these prospects. The Red Sox gave John another year at AA, though, and it paid off. He improved in 1986, 283 batting average, 10 home runs, and led the team with 28 doubles and 62 RBIs. This was a team that had Ellis Burke, Sam Horn, and Jody Reed on it. Ahead of him in the pecking order, John Marzano looked up and saw that Rich Gedman was at the Red Sox, but also Mark Sullivan, son of the owner. So he might have figured that he had some competition ahead of him. But there was another situation that should have led to Marzano getting some playing time, and that is prior to the 1987 season, as discussed in the Mark Sullivan episode, Rich Gedman is out of contract. And collusion kept him from getting fair contract offers, so he didn't re-sign and was unable to sign with the Red Sox until May 1st. And rather than give Marzano a chance, the Red Sox started the year with Mark Sullivan and Danny Schaefer. Marzano starts out at AAA, and he was not happy about it. But his manager at Pawtucket told him that it would be better for him to play every day than to sit on the bench in Boston. Schaefer had a low ceiling. The Red Sox really only expected him to be a backup, where Marzano was expected to someday be the number one catcher, and he was more of the prospect. Schaefer ended up not playing very well. He was sent back down to AAA in early May when Gedman returned. And Marzano ends up accepting that AAA assignment and playing well, 282, 10 homers, 22 doubles in 70 games. And then Rich Gedman gets hurt. So Marzano gets the call up and joins the Red Sox in late July, getting his first start on July 31st, catching Roger Clemens in a game against Kansas City. Marzano went 0 for 3 with a walk, but caught a complete game, three-hit shutout. Then got his first hit a few days later, a three-run home run off of the Rangers' Jose Guzman on August 3rd. That was part of a power surge that he had in his first 13 games. He had four home runs all against the Rangers. August 15th, he had another one off of Guzman, and then the next day hit two home runs off of Greg Harris. John made 52 appearances on the year, doing a lot of the catching for Cy Young winner Roger Clemens late in the season. And he was happy because his parents were able to see him play at Fenway late in the season. John Sr., seeing the culmination of their hard work, the thousands of hours of BP thrown and pitching machine hours, and he kept telling his wife, I can't believe that's our boy out there. And Marzano finished the season with a 244 average, five home runs. It was not the most impressive season, but you also have a young catcher, former first-round pick, along with Ellis Burks, Mike Greenwell, Sam Horn. Red Sox see a, a, a team coming together here. But then in early 1988, something happens that totally throws John for a loop. His father, who was only 61, died suddenly of a heart attack. John Jr. had continued to count on his dad's advice, and he struggled emotionally with the shock of his father's passing. He put pressure on himself to perform that year, all while missing his dad's assistance, and he said, I tried to be Carl Yastrzemski, Ted Williams, and everybody rolled into one. And with all of that swirling around him, Marzano struggled, hitting 138 in his first 10 games, and he didn't get along with coach John McNamara, who didn't like Marzano's maybe lackadaisical attitude and a little bit of an outgoing personality for a young player. Marzano had a tendency to talk with umpires, and McNamara said, it's hard to make the big leagues, but it's even harder to stay. 
And when he called Marzano lackadaisical, that really hurt Marzano, who was already in a vulnerable state. And then the Red Sox picked up Rick Cerrone, demote John Marzano, and he had a bad time at AAA, hitting under 200, got demoted again to AA, and he would later admit that he was dealing with depression at this time and really struggling to get through both the mental and emotional block that was happening. Between AA and AAA in 1988, he hit 202, and he vowed he would be back in 1989 to honor his dad. In 1989, his numbers at AAA weren't that great, but he did get a call-up and came back to the majors in September, hitting 444 in seven games, which must have been helpful for his confidence. But then Boston signed Tony Pena in 1990, pushing John further down the depth chart. He started on the big league roster, but after one at bat in April, he was sent to AAA, where he hit 320. He made it a difficult choice for the Red Sox management, and Gedman was traded in June. Marzano was called up as Tony Pena's backup. 1990, he hit 241 in 32 games and did not play in the ALCS against Oakland. He spent all of 1991 in Boston, the first time that he spent the full year on the big league roster, playing 49 games, hitting 263. He was firmly a backup at this point, but his teammates appreciated his contributions. Jeff Reardon said, I've never seen a backup catcher as helpful as he is. He lets you know what you've got, what you should throw, and maybe what you shouldn't throw. He makes you feel like a million bucks. He also made a different kind of highlight reel in July. In a game against Detroit, Roger Clemens gave up home runs on consecutive pitches and then threw a little bit inside and hit John <laughs> Shelby square in the back. Shelby starts running toward the mound. He forgot to leave his bat on the plate. Let's let's assume the best of John Shelby. And we'll include a video of this in the show notes. Uh, Marzano, he sees Shelby running toward the mound and just takes off after him. He was up out of his stance in a flash and tracking down Shelby and just tackles him up high around his neck from behind and brings him down. It's very impressive because Shelby was not just jogging out to the mound. He was running out there and Marzano does a really good job taking down the much bigger player and preventing what could have been a very, very bad scene if a batter with the bat ends up going toe-to-toe with Roger Clemens. And Shelby was a center fielder, had some pretty good speed. Marzano, I think his teammates may have mocked his tackling ability, that it, it wasn't a technically good tackle, more of like a like a horse collar. I think that that's a penalty nowadays. <laughs> it was more like he Mar- was riding his back. But I think part of it was that if he knew that if he tackled him low, Shelby could have defended himself with the bat and maybe made a swinging motion. But by jumping high and taking him down, he really diffused the weapon in the equation. Marzano said that it was definitely the fastest I've ever run in my major league career. He had some pretty good closing speed. In 1992, he had arthroscopic surgery on his shoulder, which kept him out of the first half of the season. He returned, played a combined 37 games at AAA and with the Red Sox. At AAA, he hit 290, but only 080 in Boston. He ended up released in spring training 1993, signed with Cleveland, but after only three games at AAA, he had Tommy John surgery, which ended his season. That could have been it for his career, and his baseball reference page does have a large break. Marzano went back to South Philly and worked out in a warehouse owned by attorney Steve Koplov. 
He also helped Steve's son with his baseball skills. That son, Michael, would go on to pitch in the majors for Arizona and Cleveland. But by December, Marzano was healed and was ready to get back in the game. He signed a minor league deal with the Phillies, playing 88 games in 1994 at AAA Scranton. And then he was released. In 1995, he played for the Rangers AAA team and hit 309 with 41 doubles in 120 games. He was named to the American Association All-Star Team, and the, the All-Star Game was played in Scranton, so his family and friends could all attend. He was called up and played two games for the Rangers, but was released at the end of the season. In 1996, you have a guy who's now in his 30s, 33 years old. He signs with the Mariners to be Dan Wilson's backup, maybe. They had another backup catcher, so he was could have been the third catcher. And there's an article from around the end of spring training. Marzano is one of the last guys potentially making the Mariners. And his old coach, Spanky DeFelice Antonio, went to church and lit a candle for Johnny Mars. He said, I had to say a prayer for my boy. Spanky had become a surrogate father since John Sr.'s passing. And Marzano played well in spring training. He hit 333. So along with Spanky's prayers, Johnny Mars is abilities on the field were also evident he made a good impression on the Mariners pitching staff and he ends up as the last player picked to make the big league roster Spanky said my boy made it nobody gave him a chance but he made it and Spanky was that coach who said that there's the three things that you could be if you're from South Philly and he said fortunately John chose the right one Marzano became a favorite of his teammates and fans mugging for the camera generally being a clubhouse goof Ken Griffey Jr. said Marzano was blessed with a gift to make people laugh. And Marzano got along well with Griffey, who, while he was a big star, he found him to be approachable and affable. In a game against the Angels, there was miscommunication on a pop-up, and Marzano ran into Edgar Martinez accidentally. Martinez broke four ribs and was out for a few weeks on the play. Meanwhile, Marzano was bleeding and required stitches, but everyone ran to Edgar... <laughs> And only Griffey came to him, and Griffey's comment was, Edgar is hurt. You're screwed. Despite injuring one of the team's biggest stars, Marzano secured a place in the hearts of Mariners fans in an August game against the Yankees. And there had been a simmering feud between the teams. In May of 1995, Randy Johnson beamed Jim Leyritz. Then early in this week in August, the Yankees threw at a Mariners player, so on August 28th, up 8-1, to one, Seattle's Tim Davis throws up and in on Paul O'Neill, and Marzano's behind the plate. We get a description here from Stuart Scott, which is always a nice thing to have. Three-run homer to center off, center off Dwight Gooden. Buehner's 37th job this year gives the Mariners an 8-1 lead. And let's go back in time. May 31st, 1995 at the Kingdom. Randy Johnson being Jim Leyritz. Ball creamed off his elbow, hit him in the face. On Tuesday, Yankees Graham Lloyd buzz Seattle's Rich Amaral's Amaral stepping out of the box. Wednesday, top eight, Seattle's Tim Davis throws up and in on Paul O'Neill. O'Neill and John Marzano have a few words. Beat down starts, folks, and everybody joins in. Marzano missed with a right. Look to your upper right. Daryl Strawberry gets right in the middle of it and runs after Bobby Ayala. This is a great series of brawls, but really a missed opportunity by... Johnny Mars to to really deck Paul O'Neill. I mean, he 
He throws a very good punch right at his jaw, but O'Neal ducks and misses it. If that had landed, that would have done some serious damage. It did lead to a bench-clearing brawl. The video is pretty great. There's a lot happening here. You got <laughs> Daryl Strawberry involved, Dwight Gooden's involved. It led to a Chris Basio getting getting in the mix. It so it leads to this bench-clearing brawl. A bunch of players are getting tossed, including John. He's suspended for two games, but he didn't get fined. And he said, I guess officials looked at my salary and decided we can't find this guy. <laughs> and meanwhile, Griffey played a joke on Marzano, getting the Seattle Times to make a fake front page story claiming that Mike Tyson had seen the punch and wanted a piece of Johnny Mars. Marzano's next fight? Tyson? Pretty memorable moment for a guy who played 41 games that season, hit 245. He re-signed with Seattle, played 39 games in 1997, hitting 287, and he had his first home run since 1989. Eight years later, the long, long stretch. Long drought. He signs. Long drought. <laughs> the Mariners like to have him around. He signs for another year. Appeared in 50 games in 1998, hitting 233. But he did have four home runs, which was the most since his five homers as a rookie. And he ends up released at the end of the season. That year, he was named to the Temple Sports Hall of Fame. He signed with Texas, ended up at AAA Oklahoma City, hit 244 in 44 games. But at this point, he's 36 years old and decided to call it a career. So closing the book on John Marzano, 10 seasons in the major leagues for Boston, Texas, and Seattle, 11 seasons in the minors. In the majors, a batting average of 241. He played in 301 games with 11 home runs and 72 RBIs. And a career OPS plus of 68. How about in retirement? Marzano retired to South Jersey with his wife, Terry, and their two daughters, Danielle and Dominique. He opened a baseball academy in 2001, first in an old bottling plant in South Philly, and then he moved it to the Northern Liberties neighborhood. After an interview about the facility with Comcast Sportsnet, the network noticed that John had on-air potential, and they invited him to do some post-game work for the Phillies. After a couple seasons, he was the sole color analyst for the postgame show. He did sports talk radio, hosted MLB.com's online morning show in 2007, and he was described on the show's blog as Rocky, Vince Papali, Mike Schmidt, and the Liberty Bell all wrapped into one. And there's a, a clip during his broadcasting career of John sitting with Harry Callis, and his broadcast partner tells Callis, One last question for you yes, sir. now. John, you, you hear John talk about how much of a Philly guy he is, how much he loves it all the time. Yes. And he always says on the show, we joke about it all the time, he says, Harry Callis, I loved listening to him when I was younger, but he played his entire career in the American League. He says, if only he had that one opportunity to get a call from Harry Callis of a John Marzano home run and it never happened. What might it have sounded like if John Marzano Let me swing, huh? <laughs> all right. Okay, do the you're, pitch. you're facing Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson? <laughs> Bob Gibson working on a one nothing lead, runner at first base, two outs. Here in the seventh inning, John Marzano, the batter. Johnny Mars steps in. Gibson gets the sign. Here's the pitch. Swing and a long drive. It might be. It could be. It's out of here. Home run, John Marzano. <laughs> in early 2008, John was ex excited that MLB Network was going to launch the next year. He expected to be part of the team. He had plans, but he was also going through some marital issues. He was living alone in an apartment in South Philly. 
And then on April 19th, he was found on the floor of his apartment. He had fallen down the stairs and died from postural asphyxia. Contributing factors were blunt force trauma and ethanol intoxication, which means that he had been drinking and fell down the stairs and landed in such a way that he was unable to breathe. He was only 45 years old when he died, leaving behind his wife, two daughters, and two grandchildren. Really tragic end. And David, this is a story that started with a guy who was just fresh in the majors, a number one draft pick, but had trouble breaking in. Now we have a really tragic end with a guy who had real potential to be a broadcasting star and seemed like a a really bright personality. So looking at it further, what do we think? There was a time when John Marzano was one of the next big things. There's a tweet from Darren Ravel from 2020 with a January 1988 Sports Collector's Digest ad for Topps trading cards. The most expensive cards were Sam Horn, Matt Noakes, Ellis Burks, Mike Dunn, and John Marzano. His name was right up there with these guys, above your Will Clarks and Matt Williamses, your Jose Canseco's and Wally Joyner's. People in Boston were high on John Marzano and thought that he could be the catcher of the future. And then after a few years, he wasn't going to be the guy. He was going to be a backup. And he embraced that role and became a huge clubhouse presence and a great personality in the clubhouse. And his teammates loved him for a personality that brought teams together. Ellis Burke said every time someone would hit a home run or Roger Clemens would strike out the side, Marzano would go sit right beside that player and say he wanted to get some TV time too. And there's a fun story about his time in Seattle where Ken Griffey Jr. is receiving some awards. The announcer is saying the awards, the gold glove and silver slugger and John Marzano runs out as if to collect the awards only to then have the announcer say, Ken Griffey Jr. and Marzano goes back to the dugout. He was a guy whose presence helped everybody feel a little bit more calm. And his teammates were shaken by his passing. Less than 10 years after leaving the game, many of his former teammates were ready to be interviewed by him on his upcoming TV and radio appearances. And they loved him because he was funny and tough and genuine. And he's best remembered for that fight with Paul O'Neill by a lot of fans, but his teammates remember him for that fun-loving, joking side. For fans in Philly, this is a a Philly guy who came back and was going to be the Phillies TV guy for who knows how long. Maybe he was going to go national and and be a big personality. He had only played briefly on the Phil's AAA team, but he was one of them. He was a South Philly kid who put in the hours destroying baseballs, destroying fences at Columbus Square Park. And he took that talent all the way around the world with Team USA winning an Olympic gold medal, getting drafted in the first round, but he just couldn't quite get that star trajectory. But he had that blue-collar mentality and worked through the depression and loss of his father to carve out an important role in baseball for himself. He also could have been out of baseball at age 30. He played three games at AAA that season. And he worked his way back to be called the type of player that every team should have. He worked just as hard at perfecting his media game, and his personality worked well, and he was well-liked. Phillies manager Charlie Manuel summed him up, saying he was a baseball guy and he loved life. He had a personality. 
After his passing, MLB established a broadcasting internship in his name, and there's an annual halfball tournament with his name on it in South Philly. Halfball is not a thing that I was aware of, but involves a broomstick and half of a squishy ball played in a parking lot. And this local game goes to support something that John Marzano loved, which was helping young kids and local high school talent promote themselves. And so that tournament goes to support the John Marzano Scout League, a wood bat league for local high school and college players. Seems like a a fitting memorial for a guy who was from the neighborhood and wanted to give back. It's a pretty crushing thing to see someone die in an accident that way and see them taken so soon. But a a really great story about a player I, I really didn't know anything about before today. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you're a star or a singer or a gangster, we'd love to interact with you on our social medias. Find us on threads at 1988 Tops Podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. 